Good morning. We're engaged in the search for serenity, and we talk about serenity. Serenity is the state of being calm, peaceful, and untroubled. Serenity is compelling, something that we're all looking for. It's also very elusive. It's tough to find, probably tougher to keep. Um, the serenity prayer was written in a time of global war. The original version was written by Reinhold Niebuhr in the middle of World War II. And the uh, portion we're looking at this morning, God give us the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. Courage to change the things which should be changed. And the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. You'll notice that this version of the prayer, the original, is a little bit different from the one more popularized today. Let's consider what it means when it says things that should be changed and things that cannot be changed and how we distinguish between the two. Um, how do we find that sweet spot between courageous influence and serene acceptance? How do we determine that the things that we might have wanted to change but can't and being able to change the things which should, could be changed. It's a relevant question because of the war that was raging at the time that he penned these words. Was it right for the church to stand by and let Hitler rise to power? And that was the question that was concerning a lot of churches and a lot of Christians at the time. Was it right to oppose his tyrannical rule? And Niebuhr, was he the one, the German who wrote the prayer. He was originally a pacifist. But then as he was being aware of Japanese expansion in China, he was appalled by the mistreatment of Jews in Hitler's Reich. Niebuhr became, turned from being a pacifist to somebody who... Um, be actually a leading advocate in the church realm for U.S. entry into World War II. He worked to convince mainstream fellow Christians that they had not only a right but an obligation to aid Britain against Nazi Germany. But it's tricky in the Bible if you look to Jesus as a model of um, social justice. The fact is, Jesus cared about it, but he did not trust force to encourage it. The one thing we do know, and that brings us to the prayer, back to the prayer, wisdom. What it says in the Bible, it says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And what it says then, if you want to figure out what wisdom looks like, it's pretty straightforward. Look at Jesus. Identify what he did. What did he speak of clearly? And what did he not speak of clearly? Who did he oppose? And who didn't he oppose? What did he advocate? And what didn't he advocate? And as you get a clearer picture or think about what it was that Jesus reacted to, what you're gaining is a sense of what wisdom looks like. If you want to understand what wisdom looks like, 
when carried about by a person who walked on the planet, what you do is open the Bible, look what it says about Jesus, and you are reading about wisdom. Jesus was wisdom personified. Let's think about a couple of things then. As we think about how do we gather the wisdom to be able to distinguish between accepting things that we can't change and changing things that we should change. Let's think about that a little bit, and we'll do it a couple of ways. We'll think about how Jesus developed wisdom privately, and that's where it starts. And then we'll look at how he expressed wisdom publicly. But let's think of private wisdom first. It says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'll add, just before going on, and this is a portion of scripture that we're familiar with, which has happened in this sense. Jesus then um, lived his life and came to a place when he was about 30 years old, when he kind of went into public ministry full time. What happened, he was baptized and that was the point at which he heard a voice saying, this is my son whom I am love, with whom I am well pleased. And at that point, then Jesus, having experienced what we call a water experience, which was something God was very close. He, he was a very personal experience, but immediately after that experience, Jesus was led into the wilderness. And he had these experiences that we're reading about where the, the devil tempts him. It says, um, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. It's common to associate connection with God with the ability to change adverse conditions. Jesus was enticed, invited, tempted to actively relieve, use God, use his connection with God to relieve physical, mental, and, and social stress. He was encouraged to do so because it was affirm his divine status. If you are the son of God, turn the stone to bread and you'll get rid of your physical hunger. Throw yourself down off the place in the temple and it will relieve any emotional distress. Um, Bow down and worship me, and then all the nations in the world will honor you. So it'll relieve social stress. So the relieving of social or mental or physical stress, this was placed before Jesus. And I think you'd agree with me, wouldn't you, that there's nothing wrong with being hungry and eating. There's nothing wrong with wanting to secure a sense of being loved by God. There's nothing wrong with 
being able to connect socially, it's one of the reasons after being on the far side of COVID that we're able to gradually more and more enter back into connection with people. We spend a lot of time over the last year isolated from one another, and we understand what it's like, the way it impacts us to, to experience isolation. Um, what Jesus, Jesus was clear about something, and it's deceptive. He didn't use connection with the Father as a means to automatically ask the Father to give him what he wanted. He, um, he didn't use his connection with God to reduce his tension. Again, this is, it's, it's, it seems pretty straightforward, but it really is true. He didn't come to meet his own needs. Think about that. It was, he was tempted to use God to meet his needs. And again, there's nothing wrong with doing that. He did not assume, though, that his connection with God allowed him to get his needs met. He came to serve the needs of others. And what Paul indicates is that that would, as the time goes on, well, let me tell you, show you what Paul says. Um, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Um, also talks about them being lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What Paul said is that as the end times progressed, that people will make decisions based on what they love. And it says people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. So what would people love? They will love themselves, they will love money, and when they will love pleasure, rather than loving God. So what it's describing is how people make decisions in these last days, terrible days, Paul says. And people make decisions by these questions. What will benefit me? What will make me money? What will give me pleasure? What should I do? What should I be? What should I serve? Well, what will benefit me? What will make me money? What will give me pleasure? Um, it says we will be tempted to do this same thing, to leverage our connection with God to secure personal pleasure. Now, is it wrong to be pleased? No, it isn't wrong to be pleased. Is it wise? Is it wise to assume that God will allow me to be pleased? No. Jesus didn't assume that serving God allowed him to get what he wanted to be benefited personally. He understood that serving God would mean that he would benefit others. Um, the third temptation of Jesus was the most subtle, and in the opinions of some, the most dangerous. We talked about a book. Uh, I'm just going to cite a couple of paragraphs. It was from a book, Blinded by Might, which was written by a couple of individuals who in the 80s um, felt that they could use the political process to advance spiritual causes. And they had a number of things that they wanted to accomplish. It was the time of Jerry Falwell on the moral majority, and what they believed is that they could use political means to accomplish spiritual purposes. The book, Ed Hinson and uh, Cal Thomas, they ended up writing a book which they described the frustration 
in seeking to do that. A couple quotes from them. Um, in the, it says, people may have wealth, position, fame, but unless they have power, many of them believe their lives are incomplete. Power cannot only seduce, but also affect judgment. It can be more addictive than any drug because it deceives the one who takes it. Power can be used to rationalize the most outrageous behavior because the power abuser sincerely believes his ends are justified. And so any means of achieving them are legitimate. What he describes is he comes to see in retrospect that he believed his cause was just and that that justified doing anything to accomplish those purposes. And that's where he comes to see you can seek to achieve good ends, but if you use the wrong means, you don't arrive at those ends. And this is where Jesus becomes really interesting. Jesus achieved good ends, but he didn't use the means that, well, he didn't assume that doing what God wanted would allow him to be pleased, that he had to he understand that there might be some sacrifice involved. Uh, they went on to say the marriage of religion and politics almost always compromises the gospel. That's what these individuals said. They said that religion is an absolute. It's based on the fact that there are some clear right and wrongs, and politics is not an absolute. It's based on the, the a way to compromise in order to get some things done. Uh, the danger of cloaking self-interest in Christian garb that's the danger. The danger is cloaking self-interest in Christian garb. Again, it's something that's easy to do. But what we find is wisdom enables us to serve others. And, and let's look at what this service entailed for Jesus. Um, it says in, he was looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any one of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the time. They not only memorized the Old Testament of the Bible, they memorized what different teachers had written about it. They memorized huge amounts of material. And one of these oral laws was that you could rescue an animal out of a pit if it fell into a pit on the Sabbath day. And they ruled, somebody ruled prior, and that's the way they operated, that that was okay. But it wasn't okay to heal somebody. And this is what Jesus calls into question. It's interesting, just in passing by this, uh, was reading that in the early church, they didn't take Sundays off which was interesting. Um, the Romans, they didn't have, they had a seven-day work week, basically, and they didn't have a weekend. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be weekends. I'm glad for weekends. But we just, as we kind of look back historically, just getting a, a sense for how did they operate and where did they operate differently than we did, uh, they did so. What they also believed, they were a little bit nervous about making the Sabbath a day that you didn't do anything at all because they said it felt a little bit too much like Judaism. So for the first um, probably three centuries, Christians worked on Sundays. Um, at any rate, whether that's interesting or not, I'll go on. Uh, 
And then he, Jesus said, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. Again, why did Jesus put this gag order? The thing is, he wasn't afraid of being arrested and executed. He was afraid of being arrested and executed before it was time. And that's what he wouldn't want to happen. So what he did, he put a gag order to don't tell them who I was. He's not trying to escape. He understands what's going to happen. And that's what he cleared that's what he ended up identifying earlier. It's why he said, no, I can't trust God to meet physical, social, and emotional needs because he understood in order to serve our interests, to give us a way that we could connect with God, that he was going to have to sacrifice himself to do that. Um, goes on and it says, this is to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Isaiah prophesies that this servant that they talk about would come and visit the planet, and it's Jesus who fulfilled this. They said that his ministry would not be carried out by force. He wouldn't do his ministry by violence. It indicates that his ministry would be characterized by compassionate deeds, not inflammatory rhetoric. And that kind of visits to where we are today. A lot of inflammatory rhetoric, and there are strong opinions about a lot of things, political and religious. And what Jesus practiced, now he spoke out on things, but what he advocated is compassionate deeds. The Pharisees were good at stirring up the crowd. That's how they were able to get Jesus crucified to begin with. They were good at it. They were good at saying religious things, getting people all churned up and stirred up and, and churning up the crowd. And this is how they accomplished their influence by being powerful, by being influential. They could turn public opinion where they, where they wanted to. They were good at determining how they could do that. Um, it's why they had to have Jesus executed the way he was executed. We talked about this before, but briefly, it's, it, it says in the Bible, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree or on a cross. So what the Pharisees needed to do in order, they needed to kill Jesus, but if they killed him and made him a martyr, then that doesn't accomplish their purposes because people will still end up valuing what Jesus said. What they had to do is to figure out how do we kill this guy and humiliate him and cause people to call his status into question to begin with. So what they came up with, this is it. We can't just kill him. And they kind of got together and they figured this out. We can't just kill him. We've got to crucify him. Because if we crucify him, 
Then we can let people know, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. Is that Jesus dying on the cross there? Is he, is he hanging on a tree? And people will have to say, yeah. What does the Bible say about those who are hung on a tree? It says they're a curse, doesn't it? Jesus is hanging on a tree. What does that mean? Yes, he's, he's good. They really were good at that. They were good at turning public opinion in the direction that they wanted to turn it in. Uh, Jesus did not fight back using inflammatory rhetoric. What he did, and again, he spoke up, but he didn't rely on that. What he relied on was deeds of compassion. Uh, we're at a time, again, there's all kinds of very strong views that divide us, and we're not going to deal with those easily. We have different thoughts about things. might encourage us, though, uh, be careful about how much time you give to listening to inflammatory rhetoric. It can lead in the direction of reactivity, and it can lean away from compassion. It can cause us to become so churned up, so agitated inside, that we really can't do the things that Jesus called us to do, which is deeds of compassion, not strong, striving, debating words. That's not how we reflect how to do what it is that we've been called to do. In Jesus' mind, spirit influence is not advanced by inciting the masses. You can't do spirit influence broadly. It has to be quietly and individually, one-to-one, one-to-two, talking to individuals, discussion, dialogue. What would God think of this? That's how spirit influence is accomplished. And the Pharisees were good at stirring up the masses in Jesus because he understood how it was that he was to accomplish what it is that God wanted him to accomplish, didn't do it by force and strength. and Um, Spirit influences, according to Jesus, directed toward the weak, the humble. Um, Things that should be changed and things that cannot be changed. Um, How do we find the sweet spot that balances courageous influence and serene acceptance? It would seem one thing that we could do And again, it's not something that we're going to get done overnight. Move towards compassionate deeds. AA, the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about in the 12th step is you practice these principles and you take the message to other alcoholics. What they understand is that if you're going to recover from alcoholism, you can't just make it about you. Because what ends up happening, you'll end up assuming that whatever benefits me is what's good, but ultimately that's not the truth. Um, When we learn slowly to not only concern ourselves with our needs, but with the needs of others, we end up reaching out more and being a little bit more helpful towards others. All of us practice this, but that's the direction that Jesus would have us move. That's how spiritual influence is injected into this world, not through fiery words, but with loving deeds. Um, 
how do we find the sweet spot that balances serene acceptance from courageous influence, um, move towards deeds of compassion, away from inflammatory rhetoric, uh, trust God to balance the scales of justice. God says he's going to do that. One day he's going to balance the scales, and he'll do so perfectly. Uh, a couple quotes from um, Henri Nguyen, who was a Catholic priest, had a couple interesting things to say, and I'll close with them. Actually, I, I quoted these um, in a message in the beginning of uh, July on freedom. Uh, just kind of, the temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the highest temptation of all. Hmm. Interesting quote, isn't it? Take a look at that. The temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the highest temptation of all. And then he says, what makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father, thank you for um, sending your son so that we would have an image of wisdom. We'd be able to know what it looks like, how it acts, what it does. And what we see with Jesus is that wisdom kind of weighs the cost and understands that in order to be wise, in order to be Christ-like, that we're going to have to prioritize not our own needs, but also the needs of others. Your word says that in the last days, it will be natural for people to do things because it pleases them. Little by little, though, you would have us, in being Christ-like, not do things just because they please us, because they help others. Um, and it's also, you, Jesus reveals that what wisdom looks like, it's not always being clear about who we're, who we're serving, but being clear about how we are to serve. And it's more with compassionate deeds, with proclaiming truth, and actually with backing it up with compassion, love-based deeds to others. Um, thank you for Christ and for showing us what wisdom is like. In Jesus' name, amen.